I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our children who would like to go back and hang out with Steve instead of hanging out with us. So go ahead and be dismissed. In preparation for our message today, we're in a series entitled The Greatest Stories Ever Told. We're taking a look at some of the parables of Jesus through the course of the summer. Uh, really brought back to mind an experience that Christina and I had a, a number of years ago. Um, we had the privilege right around the year 2000 to travel to Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is a country in sub-Sahara, West Africa. Um, it's, it's really one of the poorest nations in the world. I mean, we've been going to Rwanda for a number of years now, and it is way up the economic scale to, to where... Um, this, the nation of Burkina Faso is, it's, it's, it's tremendously poor. The, the average person makes 3 or $4 a month kind of thing. There's virtually no infrastructure in the country, all that kind of thing. And, and Christina and I had had the privilege of meeting a, a couple uh, who served as a pastoral, Joel Gray, served as a pastoral intern with me at my first pastorate. And then I uh, felt the, the leadership to go back to sub-Sahara, West Africa. He had grown up in Mali. And he went with a ministry called SIM. Uh, it's a... So they, they do a lot of mission activity across Africa. And he went back primarily to be a teacher, teaching at a Bible school. So I went over to teach at this Bible school in a little um, village called, a little town called Nanduga. So we flew into Ouagadougou, and that's the capital, but that's really the name. I'm not making that up. It's Ouagadougou, you know. They call it Waga, you know, so I... Anyway, but so we flew in, and we spent a couple days with them, and then we traveled out to Nanduga. Then we went further east to visit with some missionaries, um, two women who've been serving at this medical clinic for a couple of decades. And, I mean, literally, we just, we drove through rivers to get there. I mean, we're just way out in the middle of nowhere in the eastern part of the country. And, you know, we, we turned off of a dirt road to another dirt road to go into where this clinic was. And literally, people travel for my, my literally families come out of the bush. They travel for days to get to this clinic because it's the only clinic in the area. I mean, it's just like UMass, you know, uh, teaching hospital. You get there and in your bed is a cement slab that's been poured in the middle of the room. No mattress, no anything else, just a cement slab. And that's where the patient lies. And you bring your family with you because you have to, they have to make your meals. There is no kitchen. There's no... So... Between the, hot, between the rows of rooms, there's a fire pit right down the middle, and people go out and they start a fire, and they cook the meal for their patient. And so the whole family's there together, you know. And these missionary ladies have been serving there for a couple of decades. Now, there's no running water. There's no electricity. They charge some batteries up through, through um, solar. They run the generators as they can when they have fuel and that kind of thing. And, and um so they have very small refrigerators that they can use for the majority of the day. Somewhere in the night it usually runs out of battery power and they charge it up the next day, and et cetera. And, and these ladies have been there. And, and, they were, and I remember one aspect of a conversation. First of all, I was just amazed that these ladies, I mean, they, 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 they weren't just serving. They were at home. You know, they, God had led them to make this their home. You know, one lady's from Australia. The other one's from Germany. So, I mean, they came from very different backgrounds and, backgrounds, and they invested their lives in this place, and they were at home, and they, and they were full of the joy of the Lord. The, the other thing that really struck me was 
having this conversation with them because the, the goal of any mission activity is to raise up people from the nation who can lead the ministry. So you try to work yourself out of a job. So, you know, as, as, as people go, you know, go into a country like Burkina Faso, they try to lead people to Christ, form a church, grow up leaders, and then have those leaders take over the leadership of the church. And so you have those who are actually leading the ministry whose heart language is the original language, the heart language of the nation. So there, there is no disconnect in the way that they communicate. And so the missionaries, SIM, had tried to do the same thing with the leadership of the medical clinics. You know, they had doctors that came in and out, but these nurses were there all the time, and they were the primary staff. And, and so over the years, they had tried to get other people to take over the leadership of this. So they had taken some of the people who had been most active and working at the clinic, and they had sent them off to school. They had gone to medical training places and other places in, 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 in West Africa, you know, and they had been trained as nurses and et cetera, and, and they had done outstanding in their schoolwork just top-notch grades and that kind of stuff. And, and so they, they knew what they needed to do to do this role. Then they would go and do internships. And they'd be at more major uh, clinics and that kind of stuff. And they, they got rave reviews out of them. You know, in other words, they did a tremendous job. They knew what to do, and they knew how to do it. Then they would come back out to Piella. And... The, the missionaries would try to take a, you know, get them acclimated, get them working again in the clinic, and they would try to back off just a little bit and let them run the clinic. And, and what they saw over and over again was disheartening to them, but just these folks who knew what they should do over a period, sometimes just a few weeks or over several months, they would go back to doing things the way that they had always done them. So they... They would do an exam in a room, and then after it was over, they, they really wouldn't change the room. They wouldn't change the, any kind of sheets on the bed. They wouldn't necessarily change out the instruments. The, those who were attending to this, they wouldn't wash their hands. They just, they just kind of went back to the normal practices. They knew all about the importance of keeping things sterile, about being hygienic and all that kind of stuff, but they quickly reverted back to the way that they had always done things before, even though they knew differently. And, and what the missionaries shared, and, and it's a thought that, is never, that I've never forgotten, was that it really didn't matter so much what they knew. It was a matter of what they thought or what they believed that governed their behavior. They knew, what, they knew all the information about germs and bacteria and all that kind of stuff and the need to keep things cleanliness. And they knew how to do it the right way but what they believed, what they thought was, when your time is up, your time is up, and it doesn't really matter what we do. So if you're, it's not your time to die, then it doesn't matter if we clean the instruments or not, you're going to live. And if it's your time to die, it doesn't matter how sterile we keep the place, you're still going to die. And this is what they thought, this is what they believed, and so what they believed was more powerful than what they knew. And, and so they, they, there was this, I, so obviously they had this sense of fatalism, right? You know, kind of when your number's up, your number's up, and there's nothing you can do about it, so we don't really need to think about what we know. It's all governed by this because this is what we believe. And, 
You know, that concept of the, the importance of what we know versus the importance of what we believe or what we think is a very powerful dilemma for us, dynamic for us in our spiritual lives, right? We, we can spend a lot of time studying this, and we can know lots of stuff, but it's what we really think, it's what we really believe that actually governs what we do, right? Give you an example from my personal life, right? I share this with the first service. I, I know at least a certain level of information about what I should eat and what's good for you and all that kind of stuff. I, I know that, but what I believe is that Doritos taste really good. You know, and, and that the single cup of coffee has to be at least 64 ounces or more. You know, I mean, I just, I, you know, and, and, you know, my daughter, how many cups of coffee should my daughter say, well, maybe one, two caffeinated drinks a day. And I'm like, so is a couple of pots count, you know? And, and, and you know, but so we, we can know stuff, but what we believe, what we think, what we value is what really governs what we do, right? I mean, and that's, that's the struggle. It's exactly that dynamic that I think Jesus talks about in the parable that we have to study today. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 13 with me. Luke chapter 13, if you're using one of our back, Black Pew Bibles, you'll find it there in, in the chair in front of you, a chair in the rack underneath your seat. You'll find our text today on page 884. 884. And we're dealing with this whole concept of change. What does it really take for us to change? Now, the biblical word for change is the word repentance. It's to turn away and to turn to. It is to change. Repentance is to turn away from a life without God and to turn to a life to God. And we're going to see that dynamic emerge in this and then the message that Jesus shares from the parable for us. Now, it starts, this phrasing starts with this idea of at that time, verse 1 of chapter 13, at that time. Some of yours translations might have the phrasing on that occasion or on the very same occasion. This really points back to chapter 12. And from my perspective, what it's pointing back to is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount experience. Jesus is gathered. Just a huge amount of people have gathered together. The scripture tells us at the beginning of chapter 12 that they're actually having to step over one another to move around. It's a huge crowd. Jesus is teaching them. He's answering some questions as they share with him. One guy asks, you know, tell my brother to divide the estate with me and this and that. And he's, you know, the disciples are asking questions. And it's on that very same occasion when this huge crowd is gathered together, some people come forward and they report to him about the Galileans whose blood, Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the province, Pilate, the same one who had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus just a few chapters later, reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, they had been executed in the temple area while they were there to worship. We don't have any outside reference to this event in the life of the, of the temple or underneath Pilate's governorship, but Luke tells us about these Galileans who were murdered by Pilate while they were in the temple. And he, and that's 
Jesus responds to them. He asks them a question. Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? And what do you think the people would have said? They would have said yes. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. That's the way God works. I mean, think about the story of Job, right? Job's friends show up and say, Job, you know, a lot of bad things have happened to you. What did you do? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. I did the same thing I've always been doing. All the same things I did that got, when God was giving me more and more and more and more, I was still doing those things, and now I have less, 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 and less, and less, and less. But the mentality that was out there was bad things happen to bad people. So the people would have looked at these Galileans who were executed by Pilate and said, those guys were the worst sinners, and we're better than them. The other Galileans are better than them. But Jesus, look at verse 3, he says, no, I tell you, listen to this, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. In other words, they're, they're on the same level as all the rest of us. Unless you repent, you will perish as, as well. All of us are on the same level. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Siloam was an area of Jerusalem where there was a pool that used to bubble up every once in a while. We see in, John, in the Gospel of John, there was a time when there was a man there who wanted to get healed because they believed that the waters had healing powers when they were bubbling. And so he was, he was a lame man, he was, and, and the water started to bubble, and he tried to get in first, and he just couldn't get there fast enough. And every single time, somebody else beat him into the water and took the healing power, and Jesus comes along and heals him. Christina and I, when we got to travel in Israel a few years ago, we went through this part. You can still see the waters that are there, and etc. But there must have been a tower that was built into the wall of that part of the city that was designed there for defensive purposes. And because of faulty engineering, it fell over and 18 people died. And the assumption was these people did something wrong and God got them. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, Unless you repent, you will all perish just as well. You're all, they're all the same. All stand the same before God. So he tells them this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. Fig trees are very common to the Middle East. They're part of, of, of also of Western Asia. And uh, they produce a fruit that can be eaten fresh and it's very tasty. They can also dry it and it's very tasty. You know, um, when I was a kid, I used to love fig newtons. You know, I'm sure it had a little sugar and some other stuff mixed in there, but they tasted good, you know. A man had a fig tree that it was planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. It was barren. And he told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years, and by his third year, it certainly should have been able to produce fruit. He says, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? Let's cut the tree down. Let's dig it up. Let's plant something else. Let's use the nutrients here for some other thing that's actually going to produce fruit. So cut it down. Let's get rid of it. I'm done with it. But he replied, this is the gardener. He says, sir or master, just leave it. Leave it for one more year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to break up the soil. We're going to let more water into the roots. I'm going to 
bring in some the best cow and goat dung I can find and going to fertilize it. We're going to give it one more shot. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year, but if not, we can cut it down. Give me, give me one more year to see if this tree will produce fruit. Just give me one more year. Now, when you look at this parable, uh, um, there are a couple things that really stand out for me. One, one I think, is, is who is the fig tree? Now, there are those who want to say that this is really a reference to the nation of the, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, that God had planted them. He expected them to bear fruit. They really weren't bearing fruit. And with that, God said, I'm ready to be done with this, and I'm going to do something different. And some would point to the New Testament church as a part of that. There's probably some merit in that understanding. I think it could also be identified, the fig trees can be identified as individuals, us. God plants us. He expects there to be fruit. When there isn't any fruit, there comes a time when God's patience wears out, and he cuts it down, and it's gone. Now, I want to ask you a question, though. And I want you to think about this for a minute. The, the first service struggled with the answer to this. It's not apparent, but remember how the story started. On this occasion, when there's a huge crowd together, some people come forward, and they say to you, hey, did you hear about these Galileans who got executed by the Roman governor? Why do you think they were telling them that? What was their motivation? You know, don't... The answer is not, well, this is before they had the Internet, and that's the only way you got information shared. That, that's not the point. Why are these guys coming to Jesus, who's from Galilee, telling them that the Roman occupier has executed some Galileans, and they're speaking to a guy who is a religious leader with lots of sway over the masses? What, what do you think they want? Start a revolution. This is the guy. You know, their motivation, they're stepping up and saying, hey, listen, you are just the guy that God can use to bring his victory back into the nation so that we can throw off the Romans and we can become this great nation again. So their thinking is, this is the way to get God back involved in the politics of the nation. Right? This is the way to bring God back to them. Jesus tells a story. He says, you know what? You guys got it all wrong. You got it all. This isn't about bringing God back into the nation. This is about you changing your hearts back towards God. You look at it and say, these Galileans were worse than, than you. These people got killed by the Tower of Siloam. You, 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 you're the good people. And I'm telling you that unless you repent, unless you change, unless you turn back to God, you're going to experience the same kind of fate at some point along the line, either here or for eternity. So he's getting them to what? Change their way of thinking. Right? Remember the people who worked in the clinic in Piella, in Burkina Faso? They knew all kinds of stuff, but it's what they thought, what they believed that really governed their behavior. He's trying to get them to change. You're looking at this saying, this is an opportunity to bring God back to the nation. I'm telling you, you're no different than the rest of these people. You're under judgment. You need to repent and turn back to God. And there's several things that he teaches us from this parable related to that truth. Here's the first one. Is that there is a universal need for repentance. 
Not a single person is exempt from the need to repent. It's universally necessary. They're looking at it and saying, well, you know, these people, that, you know, the ones who got, the Galileans who got executed, the, the people who got, had the power fall on them and crush them, those people were the bad people. If they had just repented and turned back to God and got rid of their sin, they would have been fine. But that hasn't happened to me, so I'm good. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Unless you repent. And the reason you need to repent is because you're no different than them. And there's a universal need for repentance in our lives. You know, the Scripture's pretty clear about all of that. Isaiah put it this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We, we, just, we just want to do life our way and, 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 and make sure, we'll just be a little bit better than the people around us so the lightning will hit there and won't hit us and we'll be okay and we'll just do life our way and, and, and and, that kind of, and we go to it, we're gone astray. That Paul's a little bit clearer in the book of Romans when he says all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a universal need for repentance. Now, I think that repentance takes two forms. One is the, what I call the initial act of repentance. It is that moment that's a part of our spiritual journey when we recognize that we are indeed no different than the Galileans. We are no different than those whom the tower fell on in the area of Siloam in the city, that we are a people who could be under judgment. We recognize that we are indeed sinners and we have a change of heart and we turn our lives back and we accept the forgiveness that comes from us in Jesus Christ and we commit our lives to living by faith, even though we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we're going to figure it out as we walk with God every single day. There is that initial act of repentance, but I got to tell you, there, there's actually an ongoing dimension of repentance as well. That aspect of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, of taking up your cross daily as Jesus talked about. There's a need for you and I to have the way we think changed every single day. Because it's not just what we know, it's but because who we know should change how we think so that we live differently as we go forward. There's a universal need for repentance. And the reason there's a universal need for repentance is because there will be a universal day of judgment. There will come a day when all of us will perish, depending where we stand. But here's the good news. And this is the point of the parable, that God is a master of second chances. God loves to grant second chances. His, the imagery here is that God is the vineyard owner who's coming to the vineyard and said, I've planted you. You should be producing great figs for me to eat and enjoy right now. And you're barren, and, and I should be done with you. But I'm giving you a second chance. God is, God is a master of second chances. That's what grace is all about, right? I remember a few years ago we had the, the, October, ice, the October snowstorm. You remember October 30th or something or other, we got like 18 inches of snow, some ridiculous amount of snow. Christina and I had this peach tree that was out by our mailbox. I mean, I put a massive investment of $10 in it from, from Home Depot. But it grew up and produced all these great trees. And when it, we had a big snowstorm, it split literally right down the middle. 
about the bottom two feet, you know. And so I cut it off, and I waited three, two or three years to see if it was going to re-sprout. had a couple of other trees that re-sprouted. Finally, I had to just cut it off, right? But, but I was trying to give it a second chance to recover, you know, and it just never would. It was just too far gone. And, but God is a master of second chances. God loves a grant. Think, think about if God was not a, the grantor of second chances, if God wasn't a master of it. What would have happened in that after Adam and Eve? We would have had a Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then that's the end of the Bible. I mean, it would make read the Bible through in a year pretty easy, right? You could just do a few words a day, and you'd be done. But, you know, after Genesis 3, where you have the, the, their disobedience, where they, they do what God has specifically instructed them not to do, it'd be over. But God is a master of second chances. In fact, just a chapter or two later, you see... Cain killing his brother Abel because Abel was selling out to God a little bit more than he is and et cetera. And, and the bearer of the, pro, the, the good one is gone. And God and the master of second chances, Adam and Eve, another child, Seth, who becomes the bearer of the promise. Think about Abraham. You know, he's got the, he's got the promise of this child and it just won't come through Sarah. So he, he goes into Hera's, uh, to Sarah's handmaiden Hagar and has a child Ishmael and and God could have said that's it I'm done I was gonna I'm done. God give him second chances think about Moses right he has the second chance of being rescued out of the river but then he kind of blows that second chance by killing the Egyptian in his own initiative but God grants a second chance and he comes back and he be, becomes the deliverer of a nation think about David and what if, what it would have been like if God wasn't a God of second chances after his experience with Bathsheba and then having Uriah killed by abandoning him at the front lines in the battle, God is indeed a God of second chances. Think about Peter and his three denials of Jesus. God loves to be a master of second chances. Think about the Apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church, the killer of Christians. God's a master of second chances. He's a master of moments of grace. The gospel that's just before the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Mark, probably the very first gospel written. You know, he, he, he went off with Peter and with, with, with Paul and Barnabas on a first missionary journey, and somewhere out on the trail, he just couldn't hack it. He failed, and he went back home. Paul later said, you know, this kid is not worth it. He's not up to this. He's a failure when it comes to this. And yet Mark was able to turn it around because God is the master of second chances. He later became a tremendous co-laborer with Paul. And then became the author of the very first gospel. God is a master of second chances. He grants us the moment to be able to turn away from life without him and turn to life in faith in him and to experience the forgiveness that comes in Christ. He gives us those moments where we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can actually prove, we can understand, we can do, we can think the will of God for our own lives, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. God is the master of second chances. Those second chances will come to an end. And we will either stand before God in that moment of judgment based on our own merits or on the merits of Christ. It's our choice. 
But until that moment, God is the master of second chances. One last truth, and we'll transition into the Lord's Supper today, because I think these are such wonderful symbols to us today of what Jesus is teaching in the parables, that God, God has provided us the moment of second chance, the opportunity to have repentance powerfully change our lives for now and for eternity through the work of Christ on the cross. But I want you to see one more reality in this, and that is the peril of fruitlessly, fruitlessness in our lives. The peril of fruitlessness in our lives. When God grants us grace and he gives us second chances, he expects it to have an impact on us. I actually think we, we live in a season in the American church where we somehow believe that we have somehow become insulated from any kind of the wrath or the judgment of God, except that we can, we can in our culture, we can get saved and be baptized, and after that, God can't really touch us anymore. In other cultures, as long as I've, I, you know, I was baptized at First Communion and go to Mass regularly, there's nothing God can do to touch me. We think we have this way that we can just escape all the perils of fruitlessness, and that's just heresy in the eyes of God. And that, the production of fruit in our lives doesn't come so much start with our behavior as it starts by the way we think, what we believe. You know, just that fundamental thought patterns about the way we live our lives that we, we often think that, you know, what does it really take to be happy? And we think it's, well, it's to have more and to be healthy and to and to have special experiences. We think all that kind of stuff, whereas scripturally it's much more about our ability to be able to give, to grow through difficulties, etc. It's, it's just an amazing transformation that needs to come in order for us to avoid the perils of fruitlessness, for God to change our minds from the inside out. Just a couple simple examples. You know, we, we've done a, a few studies here, church-wide studies, and, and especially when we did a, a couple early ones, we we got feedback on, you know, well, these are kind of simple, and I know all this stuff, and I'm not going to get a whole lot out of it, and that kind of stuff. And it was about, what can I get? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if that's the, if that's the truth, then you're in a perfect position to be able to go to your group and to give to others. But we have this mindset that somehow it's about me and what I can get in order for me to grow, but it's actually more about what we can give that causes us to grow. It's a change of thinking in our lives. I, I, I've told this story before, but when I was in, in college, I, w- I, I was feeling the call of the Lord to go into ministry, but I wasn't totally sure yet and et cetera. So one summer, through some of the connections I had, I got invited to be the kind of the fill-in preacher for the summer at a little mission church in Candia, New Hampshire. The church had been planted. It was about a year old, and, and their pastor had left, and they were looking for another church planter to come in and work with it. It was a small group of about... 15 to 20 people, and so they asked me if I would be the preacher for the summer. Eight weeks or so in the summer, July and August kind of thing, before I went back to college. And I believe this was between my sophomore and my junior year in college. It might have been between my freshman and sophomore. That's such a long time ago, it's hard to remember, you know. And, and so I go to be the preacher at, at this little church, and I did such a magnificent job that when I got done with the end eight weeks, they closed the church, and it's dead. So I, I buried my first church after, in, in eight weeks. So I should have written a book, How to Kill a Church in Eight Weeks or Less. You know, it's kind of like how to lose a guy. Anyway, so a different story. But the second week I'm there, and, and I still have the notes from those sermons, and they were awful. 
You're talking about growing through tragedy. That those people that are sitting there listening to me, it was an opportunity for them to grow for just how painful those messages were. You know, and and in the second week, this guy comes up to me. He says, you know, there was a it was a woman who came here. She got a couple of kids and etc. She, always, but but she tried to commit suicide on Friday afternoon. And I think it'd be good if you went and saw her. I mean, I I had the wisdom of 20 years life underneath me. I, re- I, mean, I, I had no idea. You know, and and I remember, you know, we left a little after a little early that afternoon from from the place that we stayed during the, the summers up there in, in, in southern New Hampshire. So I had time to go by the hospital in Manchester on my way home, and, and I remember getting there and asking what room she was in, that kind of stuff, and started my, my journey up. And I'm 20 years old. I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? I, I got nothing to say to this lady. I mean, this is a, this is a 35, 40-year-old woman with two kids. What does a 20-year-old have to say to a woman who just tried to take her life? You know, and I'm thinking, I got nothing to offer. And, and to tell you the truth, I... I walked into that room and I had a visit with her. I don't remember anything I said to her. But I do remember a, a way that God changed my thinking. Is that it wasn't about what I had to offer. It was about it had to do with whether I was available or not to be used of God. And I do remember that my visit with this woman was, was a blessing to her. It was, it was something God used to bring just a little bit more hope. But it wasn't because I had anything to share with her. It was simply because I was available to God. The perils of fruitlessness have their origin in our failed way of thinking. We need to let God change us from the inside out. So Jesus says there's a universal need for us to change. And that God is willing to give us that chance. So let's take it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of grace that's available to us in Jesus Christ. That ultimately the possibility for hope, the possibility for the impact of repentance, the possibility of change that really leads to eternal fruitfulness lies in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our faith in Him. God, thanks for giving us second chances. Thanks for being a God of love. Thanks for being a God of grace. And God, as we come to your table today, we understand that that grace didn't come to us lightly. It cost your Son that grace is powerful because it can change us forever. So God, we remember today. We remember the wrath that drives the judgment and we remember the way it's been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ and we remember the grace, the hope, the new possibilities that are available to us because you loved us in Christ and died for us. We remember. We choose today to remember. We pray in Jesus.